Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Thanks, Patani, for uh, warming everybody up for us this morning. It was great. We have uh, we have an unusual sermon today, something that uh, I don't think we've done here before. Uh, I guess you could call it a topical sermon, but uh, even that, it doesn't meet the requirements of a topical sermon. But it's Christmas. You know, we're enjoying Christmas time, so we're speaking about the Lord Jesus. So my sermon today is focused on Christ. And I'm going to begin here by reading one text, and this text is going to be central to everything I say. And it so happens that it's our Christmas text, isn't it? Luke chapter 1, verses 29 to 35. We read this last night at our um, church Christmas celebration. Let's read these words, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 29 to I'm sorry, we have um, very short staff today. Half the church has gone on holiday. And especially some key guys who help us with presentation and everything. So uh, you'll just hear what I'm saying if uh, we don't manage to get this right today. Thanks, guys. I can see all the the brain power happening here. (laughs) Cool, man. So Luke 1, verse 29 to 35 says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. That's the angel Gabriel, remember? And she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Jehovah, Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I don't know when you're reading those words, if you realize the bigness of the words in the text. There's so many words, like imagine a king reigning forever on the throne of David. You know, the one to be born, this little baby, I see Bahati sitting here with his brand new babies in his home. Imagine... That little baby that's going to be born is going to be called the Son of God. I mean, what a mystery for those parents. And one of the things that's really been on my heart recently as I've been studying again, of course, is the phenomenon that wherever theology arrives on the planet, of course that theology comes into a culture, doesn't it? Everybody has has a culture, whether you realize it or not, you have a culture. And theology arrives at you inside of your culture. And isn't it interesting, if you look at the history of theology, uh, that's slide number something. It's cool. We're coming right. eh? So history arrives in in a culture. But you'll notice, if you look at the the history of culture, uh, a history of theology, you will find that a lot of the topics that we deal with in culture today, in theology today, are formed and shaped and influenced by the cultures that that theology comes into. So, for example, years ago, when the church split between East and West, you had a big Roman Catholic influence on, on the doctrine of the people who split away from the Roman Catholic Church because they were fighting against Roman Catholic doctrine. 
So a lot of the theology that we have today is formed by those historic battles. And have you noticed that when theology comes into Africa, we have those same categories. We have those um, historical categories because throughout the church, different cultures have had to deal with different theological errors. And those theological errors have become solidified in our systematic theologies, in the framework of systematic theology. And that means that here in Africa, if we don't have um, some of the theological greats that we've had in church history, who have actually carved a path and have dealt with African cultural and religious issues in theology, that means that those categories don't exist, do they? I don't know if what I'm saying is clear, but today, you know, some of those pictures that you're going to see there, I'm going to show you in picture form some of the, the most prolific views on the doctrine of Christ that we find on the African continent. And I'm hoping that that's helpful because sometimes when I'm counseling, I find out that people without even realizing it have embraced one of these views on Christ, understanding who Jesus is by default because of cultural presuppositions. Okay, so let's start. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the question, who should Jesus be in Africa? If you ask different people around the world who Jesus should be, in Africa we have this question, who should Jesus be in Africa? How should we view Jesus? Who should this man, Jesus of Nazareth, be? And before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge one author that has been massively helpful to me in this. And it's a book I've been reading recently by a guy called Michael, uh, Matthew Michael. It's funny, he seems to have two first names, but his name is Matthew Michael. And he wrote a book called um, Christian Theology and African Culture, or African Tradition. Christian Theology and African Tradition. And it's a very helpful book. A lot of guys study this in seminary and they go through it. But there's, his doctrine of Christ was so helpful to me as I was going through it. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to summarize these four views... These four predominant views that we have of who Jesus is or who Jesus should be on the continent of Africa. And then at the end, I'm going to add one view. And that view is a view that is taking over the Western world. And that Western view, that the, a view that is becoming prolific in the West, is obviously coming into Africa as well. So we're going to compare all of these four views and then one more, and then I'm going to just fly through something of who Jesus should be in Africa based on what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Okay, so without wasting any more time, let's begin at the beginning. Four different views. The first view is the comparative view, the comparative view of Jesus in Africa. So the question there is, should Jesus be discovered in African culture and tradition? Now there's a, there's a picture for this, if you have a look at it, it's like the first picture in the, present, in the whole presentation. Uh, one before that, two back. Alright, so there we go. There's the comparative view, okay. Should Jesus be discovered in African culture and tradition? And by this we mean, this is one view that we find all over the continent of Africa, is that inside of African traditional religion, and even as African traditional religion is, is intermingled with cultural issues and, and cultural processes, we find that Jesus is, is given titles, and those titles steer away from words like Messiah, Christ, Son of Man, Son of David, because they don't really seem to fit into, into the religious framework. Rather, when we think of Jesus in this way, we replace names for Jesus like Servant of God or Lord or Savior or Son of God that resonates more with traditional ideas. And what I'm saying is that a guy like um, Bedieko, when he speaks about Jesus, who Jesus should be in Africa, he speaks of Jesus um, being the supreme ancestor, saying, okay, well, we have an African traditional religious framework. So where does Jesus fit in? Okay, we'll import him. Like this picture shows, we take Jesus and we place him inside of African traditional religion and we'll say, okay, where does he fit inside of the framework? Oh, he's, an, he's like an ancestor, but he's, he's not just an ancestor, he's God as well. So because we have a supreme being who's seen as God in African traditional religion, and then we have all of the, the mass of ancestors, 
we'll see him as the supreme ancestor, like joining the ancestors with the supreme being. So in one being, we've got the supreme ancestor. And a theologian like Betty Aiko, he takes this view and he says that we in Africa should teach that Jesus replaces the ancestors. He replaces the need for ancestors. And you want to say, okay, well, that's a little bit difficult for me to understand. And we're going to look at some reasons why. But then he says more than that, we can refer to Jesus as our elder brother. Or we can refer to Jesus as the firstborn. We can use terms like this, all terms that have um, significance, of course, in traditional religion. We can call him chief. We can call him master of initiation. We can call him healer. In other words, we place him inside of African traditional religion in a place where we can find a place for him, where he fits in there neatly. One of the reasons why this view takes Jesus and places him inside of African traditional religion, sort of forms a place for him there, is because of the biblical teaching that Jesus is the only man who's, who's died and risen from the dead. Therefore, he has unique power and therefore he can be trusted. Because this Jesus lives forever, he can be trusted by the people who are still living in this world. So Jesus is, the, is an authority who is over the ancestors and he neutralizes all of the evil powers of the ancestors so that you can live safely. And this is one of the predominant views of how, who Jesus should be in Africa. He should be seen as, as the great or the supreme ancestor. And because he's a powerful ancestor, he can help you in your life to, to disperse the effects of evil on your life. Now we might say in response to this, one of the problems with this view is that it places Jesus inside of a system where Jesus doesn't belong. I don't know if any of you have ever read of this view inside of the Bible. Of course, that's the next, that's the next uh, view we're going to look at. Um, I don't know if you've ever read this idea in the Bible, and I'm sure none of you have. You've never come across this, have you, in Scripture? So that's one of the problems. It places Jesus inside of a foreign system, a system that you don't find taught in Scripture. So His eternal life and the impact of His life is infinitely greater than that of an ancestor, isn't it? He cannot displace the ancestors as our mediator because in that system, he mediates between people and another God. Now, I know in Africa, you don't have to persuade any person that God exists. The, the logical arguments of the Western world, you know, all of these philosophical ideas about proving philosophically, uh, philosophically that God actually exists is irrelevant in Africa because we all believe that God exists. But if you find out what the God of African traditional religion is like, He's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't match up to the God of the Bible, does He? It's a different God. And that is why you can't see Jesus, One of the, another, another reason why we can't see Jesus as the supreme ancestor because it's a different God in that system of thought. The place to where Christ ascended when he rose from the dead, of course, is a different place to where African traditional sees the ancestors residing now. In fact, one of the things that you'll notice when you study African traditional religion is that what is emphasized about the ancestors is, is what the ancestors can do rather than the state in which the ancestors find themselves. Isn't that true? You know, we don't know if the ancestors are happy or sad. We don't know how long they're going to live in that state. All that matters to us is that they're going to live there and help us or, you know, we can appease them so that our lives will go better while we are living. After we die, it doesn't matter whether those ancestors live eternally or not, does it? And that's a sad thing because Jesus ascends to another place. He ascends to the God of, of heaven, the God of the Bible, and he lives in absolute joy and bliss forever and ever. He will never die. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says, that he has an indestructible life. That's why he can help you forever. What a glorious reality. And then, of course, the whole view places Jesus in an environment where he doesn't belong. If you think about the Bible, it's a, it's a Jewish environment. You've got Jesus born from a family that God built up specially for the purpose 
That it's, that it's a family setup, it's a Bible, it's a narrative that Jesus comes into, and it's not the narrative of African traditional religion, is it? This view, finally, is syncretistic. And by syncretism, of course, we mean that it takes one religious system, and it takes another religious system, and it joins them together in such a way that both of those systems are damaged. Neither of them has the properties that, that they had before you began the process of joining them together. In other words, both of them become so damaged that you can't say this is Christianity, you can't say this is African traditional religion. It blends them together into a third view, and that third view is a fake view. It doesn't meet the requirements of either of those systems. Okay, so that's the first view, it's the comparative view. And now we look at the second view, the second predominant view we have. And the second one is the systematic view that we've got over here. You can see that goes the other way. Should Jesus, the question is, should Jesus be reinterpreted in the light of African traditional religion or culture? So this view goes the other way. The first view takes Jesus and places him inside of African traditional religion. This view says, well, the whole of African traditional religion, we should place it inside of the Bible and find it there. So in the ones, on the first side, you're trying to put Jesus and find him a place inside African traditional religion. This one says, let's take the whole of African traditional religion, put it inside of the Bible and find places where it belongs. And I don't know if you've done this, but apparently some scholars have done this and they've been really serious about trying to make this work. So this takes African traditional themes and it finds support for them in the text of Scripture. The God of the Bible is seen as the God of African traditional religion. Christ, the ancestor, gives life or vital force. You know, this term vital force in, on the whole continent of Africa is, is a serious, serious term. We have to have life. The, the fight for life is important. That's why you have to have children so that your, your, your legacy can go on into perpetuity. Through his resurrection, through the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings this life to people, to the African community, not only to individuals, but also to the whole community. And a proper relationship with God is found through the ancestors. And if Christ is the primary ancestor, then we can find joy through that one primary ancestor, Jesus Christ. It's amazing how far people will go to try and place something inside of the Bible that doesn't belong and then find, oh, this verse talks about this, this verse talks about this. And then suddenly, wow, African traditional religion is in the Bible. We didn't even see that before. I don't know how many of you have been reading your Bible and thought, wow, that's amazing. I see the whole system of African traditional religion inside of the Bible. I haven't done that. I haven't seen that. In fact, when I study the two, I realize how far apart they are, how different they are. There may be some themes, like the theme of sacrifice, you know, ritual sacrifices that appear in the Bible. But the whole system, the whole system is foreign to the Bible. The Trinity, for example, a guy called Nyamiti, he wrote on this thing, you know, he tried to reconstruct in this way. He tried to take the, you know, the, the, the whole of African traditional religion, put it in the Bible and say... The Trinity, for example, you know, that speaks about God. Let me explain how it works. And he says, the Father is the Son's ancestor. You say, oh, all right, well, let me, let's see where this goes. Then the Son, of course, is the Father's descendant. And they live in ancestral community through the Spirit. And if, you, if you're not paying attention, you might think, that sounds quite reasonable. Of course, the father is the son's uh, ancestor, and the son is the father's descendant. But now, let's consider a few things about this. This view, of course, like putting Jesus into, into ancestral worship, is putting Jesus in a place where he doesn't belong. But the other is also true, taking the whole system of African traditional religion and putting into the, into the Bible is putting that in a place where it doesn't belong. Isn't that true? It doesn't live there. Jesus' power is not given to him through the death and resurrection uh, as in African traditional religion. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He has power because of who he is. 
He doesn't die and then suddenly because he rose from the dead, he's declared to be powerful. Of course, Paul says that in Romans 1, you know, who by the power of his resurrection from dead was declared to be the son of God. It was made obvious that he was the son of God, that he already had that power. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to rise from the dead. So his resurrection doesn't give him power. He has power already as God himself is the son of God. He said, you know, he has the power to, he has the authority Remember in John 10, I think it was, to lay down his life and to take it up again. Jesus has the power before he even dies. He's not seen as one who has power, you know, after his resurrection. He's seen as one who has power before he rises from the dead in Christian theology. And then secondly, the father could not become the the son's ancestor unless the father first died. How many of you know somebody in an African cultural setting... Where somebody becomes an ancestor without dying. It's not possible. You can't become an ancestor in that system without dying. Has God the Father died? No. God the Father hasn't died. So how can God the Father be the Son's ancestor? The Spirit, of course, in the system loses his personhood. And he just becomes a medium of communication. Like a telephone. Rather than an actual person. It's weird, you know, if I sent somebody to give a message to somebody else and then I didn't treat that person as important like a human being, you know, it would be a very disrespectful thing for me to do to just, you know, treat them like a messenger rather than a human being. And in this case, it does that. It robs the Holy Spirit of his personhood. He's he's the third person of the Godhead. He's not just the telephone. And then, of course, just like the first view, this view is syncretistic takes the Christian faith, it takes African traditional religion, and it blends them together in such a way that neither of them resembles what they started off to be. It's no longer Christianity, so it cannot save. It's no longer African traditional religion, so you can't say that you're worshipping in a traditional way because your, your system of faith is broken by joining it to Christianity. Neither of them work anymore. Okay, so that's... Firstly, our comparative view, taking Jesus and placing him into African traditional religion. And then the second view is the systematic view where you take the whole of African traditional religion, you create a system where you place it inside of the Bible and you say, this is how it all works with scriptural backing. You've got to really twist some things to make it work. And then the third view that we have on the screen here is the liberationist view, the view of liberation. And this question is, should Jesus be the provider of political and economic freedom in Africa? Is Jesus our political champion? Is he our political symbol, if I could call him that? So in this view, I mean, this is a very widespread view. It's not only in Africa. This has come from South America all the way through North Africa and down to South Africa in our country. And this... This political, this um, liberation view sees Jesus as a political figure who came to address the injustices, the political injustices at the time when he was walking on earth. So they see Jesus as a political activist, you know, walking around and trying to overthrow political powers at his time. And therefore, because they come to the view that Jesus is a a liberationist is a political figure who's come to overthrow oppressive powers at his time therefore he should be viewed as a political activist in our time as well that what really matters when we when we follow Jesus as our leader is that we assault current political powers that may be oppressive you know or not match up to your expectation for a political power so he's the symbol and he's the model for the present day struggle against political injustice so others of course you know when there's a when there's a cause like this other people also jump onto the the bandwagon don't they so then you've got you're not only people who say i don't like the government and we're going to use jesus as a political symbol to overthrow this government you've also got people like feminists who say well we're also victims and therefore we're going to use jesus as a liberating figure and we're going to ride him through to victory and you've got a whole lot of other people as well. I think we could speak about the homosexual agenda as well. You know, we attach that. Every victim uh, threat can go onto the same liberation theology. And, and however I feel victimized, 
by somebody who's oppressing me, I can just carry this theme through and I can ride to victory using Jesus as a liberation model. He's the healer in this view. He's the personal friend. He's the liberator. I guess we could, in this view, we could call him comrade. Comrade Jesus, you know, who carries us through to victory on our own agenda. So the liberation of the poor in this view, and I, th- I don't think we can overlook the importance of this, the liberation of the, pure, the poor in this view is the primary issue that the church must be concerned with. The church's main job in this view, Jesus as a liberator, is to liberate people who are living in poverty so that everybody can rise to one level and be equal. That's the core of the liberationist view. Mugambi taught that salvation, when when he uses the word salvation, and I highlight that because when you speak to somebody who talks about salvation, and you talk about salvation as a Christian, you're probably talking about very different things. Mugambi said that salvation means adopting a new Jesus-like attitude that does away with oppression from people in power right now in this world. So that the church is only being effective if it is assaulting political powers around us that are oppressive. I don't know how many of you, just off the top of your head, have read a chapter in the Bible that resembles this view. I don't know if you saw Jesus as the liberator in his time, assaulting the powers. In fact, remember, Jesus was not only not assaulting the powers, he told Pontius Pilate when he was on trial that his kingdom is not of this world. In fact, if Jesus could have, I mean, if Jesus wanted to, he could have overthrown the, the Roman Empire at that stage, couldn't he? Like, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels, the one old song says, to destroy the world and set him free. But he died alone for you and me. Jesus did not come to be a liberation symbol, a political liberation symbol. So this view, sadly, it makes Jesus out to be a political activist. If Jesus is taught non-politically in our world and a person who believes this doctrine hears that preaching, they say you're preaching a powerless Jesus. If this Jesus doesn't overthrow the current powers, then he's a powerless Jesus. But we believe the contrary. We believe something quite different and we're going to look at that in a moment when I sum these things up. This view is also dangerous because it rejects the biblical teaching on suffering and glory. Remember one of the last times I preached, I I preached on suffering and glory. This liberationist view, it rejects that view on suffering and glory. There should be no suffering. And it insists that Christianity must bring an end to suffering right now. Is that, the, is that the teaching of the Bible? Absolutely not. Just look at First Peter, for example. It's also dangerous in a guy like Ella, who teaches on this, and others like him. They start off, when they build this theology, they start off with a liberation mentality, a, a political liberation view. And then they find that in the Bible. They find all of these liberation views and they say, look there, Jesus is a liberator. Jesus is a liberator. Jesus is a liberator. And they build their liberation theology into the Bible rather than taking the text of Scripture and doing an exegesis with proper rules of hermeneutic and finding out what the text is actually saying. There's a difference between what I'm saying the text is saying and what the text is actually saying. Isn't that true? It's dangerous because it reduces Christ's agenda to race, gender, or even Marxist political ideology. Whatever you believe about Marxist um, ideology, it's it's not the doctrine of Jesus. You can't make Jesus out to be a Marxist. We could ask the question, if this was what Christ came to do, was Jesus' mission a success? Did Jesus end poverty? Did Jesus end inequality? Did Jesus end all suffering? So if this view is true, if Jesus is the liberator, and Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, but there's still suffering, there's still oppression in the world, did Jesus fail? 
If Jesus hasn't failed, how do we explain this view? It sure seems that we have an impotent Christ if this view is true, doesn't it? And then finally, rather than rather what makes liberation theology impotent in Africa, that it is transplanted from a different environment altogether in South America. And it's come here in South Africa and in, on the African continent and liberation theology doesn't work, does it? We haven't seen liberation theology, theology liberating oppressed people on the continent, have we? African continent is a sad place, isn't it? There's so much, so much oppression and so much corruption, so much trouble, so much poverty, so much sickness. A sad, sad thing. And if liberation theology was true, surely the gospel would be powerful enough to change this even in our time. But we don't see that as a trend, do we? And then we come to the last one. The community-orientated view of Jesus. This is the last one of the four African commonalities. And this, by the way, this has been gleaned from so many different African scholars that it's... Uh, I didn't quote everybody, but if you read Matthew Michael's book, you find he's done extensive research into this. The, the, fifth, the fourth view is the community-orientated view. And the question here is, should, be, should Jesus be the champion of community in Africa? Ah, now we're on the same page. <laughs> That's cool, man. Thanks, bro. Should Jesus be the champion of community in Africa? And of course, at face value... Starting off, we might say, yes, you know, Jesus was a people person. He was walking around on his feet. He was meeting person after person. He was developing relationships with people. He was using those relationships in order to transfer the truth to individuals so that those people could be saved and that those people could become like him and go and do the same thing with others. Go and develop relationship, share the gospel with people in relationship and see that happen again and again. And that's why we're here, isn't it? Because Jesus was a people person. He was a relationship person and he was a truth sharing person inside of those relationships. What a wonderful encouragement that is to us. So we might say, um, what's wrong with this view? This view begins with the existential realities of poverty, corruption, disease, war, famine, and all of the other evils that we were speaking about on the continent. And it says, all right, the way we understand this is that there are all of these evils because there's evil power behind everything that people do. There's evil forces, evil spirits, animate or inanimate forces that are, that are pushing evil in our time and therefore we have poverty and disease and accidents and all kinds of tragedies that we see on the continent of Africa. And because all of these things are caused by evil powers, evil spirits or, or inanimate forces, therefore the individual and the communities need to fight against the spiritual powers with good spiritual power. We need to find an equal force, an equal, equally powerful spirit that is, is able to repel all of these evil forces and thus do away with all of these evils that we're experiencing. So therefore, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He is seen as a spiritual champion and He is the conquering Lord and He never, ever, ever fails in a contest with evil. Imagine finding a community champion like that, saying, well, you know, we are Christians, we embrace Jesus as a champion, and therefore this Jesus is going to help us ward off all of the evil that is bringing poverty and disease and war and famine and all of these other evils to our community. It's starting to sound like the load is falling off the lorry, doesn't it? Yeah, we started off well with community and relationship and, and loving people, but then suddenly, whew, the lorry is tipping, the load is slipping off the back of the lorry, and you, you start saying, I don't know if this is what Jesus had in mind when He, he he's, he's a, he's a, a Savior who, who represents the epitome of good Christian relationships and the sharing of truth in those relationships and seeing that perpetuate. I don't know if that's what He had in view. In fact, in the community view, Jesus is worshipped as the protector and provider, those two key phrases, the protector and the provider, right now. He must, he must protect us from evil, our community must protect us from evil, and He must provide for our needs. He must provide things like 
food and water and clothing and shelter and security. And he must do that beyond our expectations. This, this Jesus, if he's, as, if he's as great as the Bible says he is, I mean, he died and he rose again by his own authority and power. He must be able to give us way more than we can anticipate or expect. He destroys forces that disrupt social harmony and peace. He brings peace in our communities. If we worship Jesus, He brings peace. And it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Therefore, this view reasons that even governments should be under the authority of Christ. And therefore, we've got, you know, Christian political parties in our country. And if you've studied theology, you know how, difficult, how dangerous it is for us to mix religion and politics. Eh? You can't have a Christian government. You can't rule a country uh, treating the country as if the country is a church, can you? There's, there's a huge difference. Politics and, and theology have two different agendas. I do believe that the Lord calls Christian people to political positions and they function well, but they function according to different rules, different responsibilities, and they achieve different goals. To the, the function and responsibility and goal of the church. How could we critique this? Uh, the last little thing. Christ is the champion who fights personal battles against evil without losing. So of course in Africa this appeals more than the classical view of Christ. The biblical view of Christ. Why would I want a Christ that won't alleviate my poverty? Why would I want a Christ who might leave me in sickness? We've got Eve here who's been suffering for weeks, eight weeks, struggling. She can't even sit down for more than a few minutes a day. She's standing at the back there. You know, why would I want a Jesus who won't alleviate that sort of suffering and pain? Because that's not what Jesus came to do, is it? We're going to see in a moment. So this view, one of the critiques is this view shows very little interest in the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus saving the individual soul from the wrath of God forever, like whatever. You know, I want poverty alleviated now. I want a peaceful community now. I want water and food and clothing and, and medicine. I want to be healthy now. What, what good does it make if, if things are going to be great in 10 million years from now, if I'm suffering right now? I need a Jesus who's going to help me now. So this view shows Jesus as the protector and provider of my community setup. So we have peace and provision. That's one of the big problems that ignores the Jesus of the Bible. And it ignores the great current and future spiritual and physical riches that are in Christ. And I want to say, Christ is about wealth, isn't he? But the timing of that wealth is the issue. True believers are living for a world to come. We're living in suffering now because if we suffer with Christ, we're going to reign with Christ. We're going to reign in glory that cannot be estimated in this world. We are going to be wealthy beyond what you can imagine. We're going to have a weight of glory placed on us that if we were not glorified, we wouldn't be able to carry the weight of glory that is going to be so big. We're going to be dazzled by the wealth that God grants us in the world to come. And sadly, this view reduces Jesus' role to provider and protector in this world alone without a thought. On Christmas Day, I'm going to speak a little bit more about this. I'm going to speak about the past and the future. And I'm going to show why the birth of Jesus makes the past and the future so important. And there's some twists you'll see. Okay, so that's, that's the main four uh, prevailing views of who Jesus should be in Africa. Now, just to make balance this out a little bit, I'm going to show you one of the views that has developed in the Western world that has come into Africa, and I'm hoping that as I describe this view, you're going to say, oh yeah, I can, uh, I can see that I've fallen for a little bit of this as well. So, this comes from Michael Horton's book, Christ is Christianity, and I love this phrase he uses. He calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And even from that title, you can see what Michael Horton is saying. The question here is, should Jesus make you a nice person and be your therapist? 
Should, should the Christian life, because I have Jesus, be, okay, now I'm a nice guy and I feel good about it. Jesus, in this picture, Jesus is the one standing next to me, patting me on the head and saying, you're great. Uh, Becky, if you go on to the next picture, you'll see the picture there. Um, I don't know, these, when you import the slides into this particular program, they're black on the screen, so you don't even know what's next. So we've got to have a lot of sympathy with the guy trying to work this thing out. Eh? <laughs> um, yeah, there we go. Jesus, uh, you're amazing. Alan, you're amazing. You just, you just do this thing, man. You can do this. You know, like Hope is always saying, you're doing a good job, man. <laughs> You know, that's, that's the therapeutic Jesus, the moral, just be good, just be nice, try not to do stuff wrong, and you'll feel nice about it. Jesus is there to pat you on the head and say, you're amazing, you know, I love you, you know, you're just the best thing since sliced cheese. And that's really a view that he's taking on in the Western world, and it's here in South Africa too. So this view says, okay, God created the world, we all agree on that. In, in Africa, of course, there's so many different traditions on where the world came from or why the world came. But those things don't really matter as much as they do in this view. All we know is, okay, God created the world. Secondly, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. So, in this view, if Jesus is the moralistic, therapeutic Deist, you know, the, the, the God character who's all about you being good and you feeling nice, then it actually doesn't matter too much whether you're a Muslim, for example, because, you know, the Muslims believe in doing nice things as well. So, I mean, what's the difference? There's no real big difference between the two. It's just be nice and feel nice about it. That's what religion's all about. Just let, help me to get through this day feeling nice and then I'll, I'll sell out to any religion. But seeing it's Jesus, it feels right because Jesus, we know, is the, is the Son of God in the Bible. So let's, let's make it Jesus. I mean, this is weird. It just sounds like you can flip from any religion to the other. But we like Jesus because he makes us feel nice. There's, there's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay? The third point of this is the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I, I don't need to tell you how many times I've started off counseling sessions and I've realized that half a lot of people's problem is that all they want is to feel happy and feel good about themselves and it's just not happening and now big calamity has struck. Got to fix this problem. I need to get to this goal somehow. I've got to feel happy. I've got to feel good about myself. If I don't feel happy and good about myself, then life is not worth living. This is the view of moralistic therapeutic deism. The next point about this is that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when you need to resolve a problem. I think if I just keep quiet for a while, and you think about that, you'll realize to a degree I am a moralistic therapeutic deist. That sometimes I don't pray for a long time, and then suddenly, when things start, start going wrong, I find myself on my knees again. Oh God, are you sorry that I haven't prayed in a long time, but help me with this one thing. Kind of like Samson, you know, when he's like, God, please give me strength this one last time, you know, to, to take revenge on the Philistines. You know, we kind of, we, we do find ourselves being like that sometimes, don't we? If we have to be honest. We don't really need God much in the, you know, can't think of anything we need people to pray for for us because ah, I'm fine I've got this but then the final point is that good people go to heaven when they die and people rely on their good character before God sadly my grandfather not long before he died we as a family he, he stayed with us for years man I think it was like 19 years or something he stayed in our home we looked after him after his wife died and it was so sad. We shared the gospel with him so many times. He grew up as a Roman Catholic. And, you know, he, he sort of drifted away from the Roman Catholic Church. And he, he lived a godless life. But at the end, after the last time we shared the gospel with him, he said, you know what? I've lived a good life and God won't judge me for that. And he died with those, that final position on his lips. 
And I'm sad to say that I think he found God to be quite different to what he was expecting God to be. That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Good people like me will go to heaven when we die, but they don't even stop to think about whether they're a good person. They just think they're a good person. Okay, so let's have a look at the final evaluation of these four views and then this moralistic therapeutic deism. Let's put them all together. Biblically, who should Jesus be in Africa? And when we answer that question, we'll notice, firstly, that these four views, they fail by not appreciating who Jesus really is. None of those four views on who Jesus should be in Africa um, take into serious consideration the true identity of Jesus Christ. They, f- they emphasize his humanity over his deity. They see him mostly from below rather than seeing him from above. And of course, that's the equal opposite error is to only see Jesus from above, see him as a glorious Savior up there who never has anything to do with us here in our communities and in our lives. They see his imminence over his transcendence. And by imminence, I was just describing that, speaking about the fact that Jesus is so close to me and so involved in everything about my life that I can never even take a breath without him being fully involved in that breath. I can never blink my eye without Jesus being fully involved in that blink. You know, the fluid on your eye, you know, you look around and sometimes you see something floating on. He knows all about that and the path that that thing's going to take. Everything is under his control. He's imminent. He's not only on your skin, but he's inside your skin. He's so close to you that he's closer to you than your own breath. He's closer to you than your own heart beating in your chest. That's imminence. His closeness. His involvedness. His concern for the details of life. His concern for the person who's going to bed hungry. His concern for the person who's walking alone at night on a rainy night and he hasn't been able to find transport. He's concerned for the person who's being stabbed to death in an alleyway. His imminence, his closeness, his involvedness with all of those things. So these views, they see his imminence as something that is more important than his transcendence, that he's the God overall. He's the creator, he's the sustainer, the one who upholds all things by his powerful word. And these things need to be kept together. So it's not only overemphasizing one aspect of the Lord Jesus, but not seeing the relationship between those things. Why would he allow suffering to continue in this world? Because he has a purpose with suffering. And his purpose has to do with the fact that he's transcendent. He's the God over all this whole world, this whole universe. Every single moment of pain and suffering has a purpose. And one day we're going to turn around and look back and say... I understand. I finally get it. I see why I had to suffer on that particular day. And we're going to say, thank you God for the suffering that you allowed me to endure because it has brought about unfathomable glory, unfathomable wealth, unfathomable beauty and wonder and satisfaction. So that's that's the first critique we would have. These four views fail to not appreciate who they fail to appreciate who Jesus is. Secondly, Christ is if there are any kids sitting here, I think well the kids have run out to the happy birthday Jesus thing. But if you're a kid and you're sitting here, here's a big word that you're looking for today. Uh, so that you can tell me you heard the word. Jesus is fully man and is fully God. At the same time he is the God man. We can use that word of Jesus. He's the God-man. In one word with a hyphen in the middle. The God-man. There's only one God-man. He's the God-man. And all of these African views and and this whole messed up Western view that is coming through, they all fail to notice that Jesus is the God-man. The one unique God-man. That is fully man and is fully God. Two natures in one person forever. Forever and ever and ever, Jesus will be like this. The Son of God will be the God-man. His purpose is to establish a glorious eternal kingdom. His purpose is not limited to this small little spectrum of time in which we're living and this small little universe. His agenda is focused on an eternal glorious kingdom where He Himself will be King. Jesus Christ will be the King of another kingdom. I don't know if you have embraced 
the, the framework of African traditional religion. I don't know if you would be able to convince me that dying is something that you look forward to. Because after death, there's very little. But if you know Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ of the Bible, there's a glorious, glorious, glorious kingdom coming. There's life with quality that is coming. And you're going to live in the fullness of life, in the fullness of joy, forever and ever and ever and ever. You're never going to have to say, oh no, this is only going to last another 50 billion years and then it's done. Forever. Aeonios. I love that Greek word, it sounds cool. Aeonios. It's just on and on and on and on. Never ending. So he's going to establish a glorious and eternal kingdom. His method is to save his people from their sins now. That's his purpose. In your suffering, you read Psalm 107, for example, God will press people to such suffering in order to bring them to the point where they say, okay, God, I surrender. God, have mercy on me. I've suffered enough. Please have mercy on me. In that suffering, that's one of his purposes for suffering, is to bring you to your knees before this Jesus, the God-man. We read, we read about all of these things in, in Luke chapter 1 when we started today. The God-man, when you, when you read in verses 29 to 35 there, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. You will be with child and you will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary's going to give birth to a little boy and he's going to be called the son of the most high the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever his kingdom will never end in case we didn't get the first part he will reign over the house of jacob forever and then he says his kingdom will never end twice just in case we missed it the first time it's an eternal glorious kingdom that is coming and christ is going to rule over that kingdom he's going to be our king I do have some sympathy, for example, with the community-orientated view that Jesus is at, is at the center of a beautiful uh, community. But isn't the kingdom the thing that you're longing for when you're longing for community? It's a glorious, eternal kingdom. It'll never, never, never end. And the satisfaction and joy and peace and provision will never, ever end. So Jesus does bring that, but he's not bringing that now. It's not his primary agenda. Fully God, fully man, in one person, two natures. His purpose is, is to establish a glorious eternal kingdom. His method is to save people from their sins now, bringing peace between God and men now. Remember what the angel said to Joseph when he was telling him, don't worry, you know, your wife is pregnant, yes, but this is the product of the Holy Spirit. He said, you'll call his name Jesus in Matthew 1. Because he will save his people from their sins. That's his purpose. He's not saving me from poverty or sickness or pain in any form. He's coming to rescue me as an individual from my sins so that I can stand safe before the God of the Bible forever and ever and ever. And it might sound like we're splitting hairs, but that is all the difference. That's, the, that's where syncretism smashes the truth so that you can't see this reality. The salvation is you personally, you individually, you specifically, as an individual. Not my community, not my friends. Individual after individual, that is what Jesus is doing. He is saving his people by living as them, by dying as them, by rising from the dead as them, by ascending into glory as them, so that you and I can stand before God as Jesus forever and ever and ever in fullness of joy. His primary agenda is not to save his people from suffering now, but his primary agenda in suffering is to keep us through suffering. Is to keep you, to sustain you, to carry you, to be the parakletos, to be with you, to, to support you and help you and to give you good courage as you struggle through difficulty now. Remember what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 5. 
Not only so, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know a fact. And the fact is that suffering does produce perseverance. And perseverance does produce character. And character does produce hope. And hope does not disappoint us. He's not saying persevere, persevere, persevere. He's saying this is a fact that is going to happen. If you're a child of God, if Jesus has saved you in this way, you will persevere when you suffer. And you will develop character. And you will develop hope. And that hope will not disappoint you. And you will stand before God with fullness of joy. And He's going to say to you, well done, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't it amazing? What He's done in me causes me to persevere through suffering. And then I come in front of Him and He says, Alan, well done. I'm like, well, you did it, Lord. You did it. You know what I'm like. I wouldn't have persevered. But you did it. You changed me. So you gave me power so I can do it. So we've looked at this, um, the first view that showed in Africa we often try to put Jesus into African traditional religion so he can help us from there. Then we've looked at the view that takes the whole of African traditional religion and places it into the Bible and finds it there at home. Then we've looked at Jesus as the liberator who, brings, who is a political activist and who brings uh, political peace and freedom for us now. And we've critiqued that from, from the Bible. And we've had a look at the fact that uh, some of the views say that Jesus is the community-oriented community Jesus who provides for and protects us in our community so we can be happy and safe. And then we looked at moralistic therapeutic deism. And we saw that in the, West, in, in the Western world, this wave that is coming over our way is looking at Jesus as simply one that makes us feel happy about ourselves, good self-esteem, and then everything's cool. Just Jesus does that for me. And then we've had a look at, at just a few points. Obviously, we can't go into the whole doctrine of Christ here. We could teach for hours and hours in the doctrine of Christ. But we've just looked at a few points where a biblical view of the Lord Jesus Christ actually matters. So in conclusion, let me say, so in Africa, Jesus should not be discovered in African traditional religion. Jesus should not be, I mean, African traditional religion should not be placed inside of the Bible and discovered there. Even though he will finally establish a glorious kingdom, he is not a political symbol now. Nor is he only our protector and provider for now. In contrast, in Africa, Jesus should be seen as the God-man. He should be seen as the king who is rescuing the individual now from his sins forever. And he's bringing peace for that individual now and forever before God. And every saved individual will go through suffering... And they will persevere through suffering and they will reign with Jesus forever in a world to come. And maybe I could just end with this one quote by a guy called Odin. You know, he's quite a prolific writer, but uh, I've just got this one quote from him. And he says, Where Christ is misplaced, humanitarian acts may remain, medical relief work may continue, and political action may work for humane interest, yet... These often lack the spiritual and moral vitality of that life which is hid in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us today. Help us not to be deceived by views on Jesus that, that really appeal to our needs right now. Our perceived needs. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to place Jesus in this tiny little box where all he is is my protector and my provider right now. Help us, Lord, not to ride on Jesus like a political activist that will bring us political freedom right now. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to see Jesus as the, as the one who is couched well inside of African traditional religion. Because we've seen, Lord, that that makes Jesus small. It, it binds him up in a tiny little framework and it doesn't fit who Jesus is. It doesn't fit his identity. Lord, please help us not to read traditional religion into the Word of God, thinking that this is a biblical framework. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to distinguish between those and the glorious God of the Bible, the glorious God that was promised to Mary 
as she was this young lady, and the angel appeared to her, and he said, Do not be afraid, Mary. What a glorious reality that she would be the son, she would be the mother of a son who would be the Messiah, the great and glorious God. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see this Jesus, not only to be encouraged by the fact that he rescues us as individuals from our sins right now, forever and ever, but help us, Lord, to take courage in the fact that this same Jesus is the Jesus who is going to return and is going to take us into great glory. Lord, we pray that you would help us today. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name.